We're continuing in our study of Leviticus. We come this morning to Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. And our New Testament complementary passage is John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you would, please open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 2, and in honor of God's Word, please stand. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 here, God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of all his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Leviticus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and continuing in the reading of God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band around the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece, he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils in the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waist and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering with Aaron and his sons, laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hand on the head of the ram, and he killed it. 
And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read and as we come to hear, would you speak to us by your word and spirit in Christ's name? Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So children, there are days in our lives, days in our year, that we look forward to with great anticipation. Maybe it's Christmas morning. Maybe it's your birthday. Maybe it's Thanksgiving Day. But there are days that are really, really special days that we're all excited to see. And you might be surprised to know that what we have just read is probably the most exciting day in all of this whole narrative. In all of what we've been reading in Exodus and Leviticus, all of the preparation, all the bringing out of Egypt, all of the building of the tabernacle, all of the sacrificial system and all of this has been preparing us for today. This is the day. This is the day that Aaron and his sons become the priests. Now, you'd be forgiven if, as I read, you weren't thinking, wow, how exciting. You might have even been like long loaves of liver and fat and kidneys and burning and what? What is, what is this? Here's what it is. Moses is painting a picture. God is using Moses to paint a picture. This entire thing all through Exodus and continuing on is a picture. And the way that you and I can understand this text and understand the beauty of this text is if we understand it as something that we're looking at. A picture. I want to point out this picture that is before us this morning. And I want to point it out in two ways. The first is this phrase that we heard repeated over and over again, which is, as the Lord commanded. Did you hear that as I was reading? It came up a lot. As the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. We're going to look at that briefly, and then we're going to look at the second portion of this picture, which is what this picture shows us about a better priest. So the first is, as the Lord commanded Moses, and the second is a better priest. Now, everything, as I said, that the children of Israel have been going through has been been leading up to this very moment. If you remember all the way back from Exodus, chapter 4, verse 21, 
The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The very first confrontation with Pharaoh was saying, Israel, my son, is going to go into the wilderness and is going to serve me. It's going to happen. Either you let my son go or I'm going to kill your son. And of course, we know the plagues. We know the, the, the fact of the matter is God not only killed Pharaoh's son, but he killed Pharaoh's army. He killed a whole lot of people to bring his firstborn son out of Egypt to this holy mountain that he had told Moses that he would bring the people to. And on this holy mountain, beginning in chapter 18, God enters into this covenant with them. He gives them his law. He gives them the ways that they should speak to one another. He gives them the tabernacle itself. And a big portion of that second chapter, or second part of Exodus is all of the details of the construction of the tabernacle. And as we've been going through that, we've noted that what God is doing is presenting to you a visual, a visual, a picture of the gospel. The tabernacle is Eden. In the Holy of Holies, this place of mercy, this place that's covered in gold, this place of fellowship and light and safety, this place that is God's glory house traveling through the wilderness. This place of healing and wholeness where everything is right. But that holy place is cut off. You can't enter. You can't just walk into the presence of God. There's a barrier there. And before we can go through that barrier, we've got to have this elaborate system of sacrifices recognition that I deserve death and I place my hand on the head of the lamb or the ram or the goats or the bull and I say, this one is dying in my place. All of these visual images of Eden and Eden restored. And yet, do you remember the visual image that we have at the end of the book of Exodus? It's a very bold image. And that is the tabernacle completed, the glory of God descending upon the tabernacle and Moses standing outside. Moses, the great deliverer, cannot enter into the presence of God. Moses, the one who speaks with God face to face as a man does a friend, is the one who cannot enter into God's presence. And so we have the Levitical system. We open in Leviticus chapter 1 with this elaborate sacrificial system. But now finally the day has come when the priest himself and the priesthood is actually being ordained. It's the greatest day ever. When finally we have people whose job it is to make a way for us to be at peace with God. Finally, the day is here. And one of the interesting things is that phrase, 
as God commanded Moses. Because if you think about that for a minute, you see that that takes Moses and Aaron completely out of the picture. This is not Moses' ritual. This is not Aaron's ritual. This is precisely step by step, word for word, action by action, clearly prescribed by God. Now the question becomes, why? Is there something magical in all this stuff? Of course not. These things are not carefully prescribed by God because of what they accomplish. These things are carefully prescribed by God because of what they speak. They show to you and to me in picture form the very work of the Trinity. The very work of God himself in bringing about salvation. Moses stands in for God the Father as he is the one who consecrates Aaron and his sons, the priests. He is the one who sets them apart. He is the one who purposes that Aaron and the priests are going to accomplish redemption. The Holy Spirit is evident throughout, not just in the washing of the water. Did you see in verse 3? That first sign, that first element, the washing with water. The sign of the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit, but then later, the anointing of oil. Aaron and his sons are anointed, all of the, the instruments are anointed. You see the work of the Holy Spirit pictured here in the washing of water, and the consecrating oil. And of course, in the priesthood, you see the work of the Son. You see that high priest who himself comes on behalf of the people, who wears on his garments the golden names of all those, those precious stones, the breastpiece, the ephod, the the names of the tribes of Israel on his garments as he comes and presents the offering. Beloved, look at this image with me. Look at this scene with me. Because in these dusty courts thousands of years ago, out in the middle of the Negev, You and I see God. You and I see redemption. You and I see salvation. And we see salvation, beloved, in the very middle of the wilderness. Modern man, the modern angst, maybe, some sociologists believe, comes from a disconnected feeling from history. 
that somehow history is not my story, that we are disconnected from that history. And the fact of the matter is, a Christianity that is grounded in history, to a person who feels absolutely disconnected from history, makes no sense. It's irrelevant. We live in a day in which our moral standards are completely subjective and change from moment to moment. Change from month to month. What was horrific and I should be shocked at four years ago, what is terrible and outrageous four years ago, today, I'm excusing. (laughs) I'm defending. The, the, the very same things that one crowd, when it was politically convenient, screamed about. The same crowd, now that it's politically convenient, stays quiet about. And the same crowd that stayed quiet back then is now screaming <laughs> today because all of our morality is relative. And so when your morality is entirely relative, What possible relevance can this have for you? It may be wicked to chop pieces off a child ten years ago, and it may be noble to chop pieces off a child today, and ten years from now it may be wicked again. Who knows? Who knows? And beloved, you and I have a different story. You and I have a different hope. You and I have a different narrative. It's God's story. It's God's narrative. And here in this strange tent and tabernacle and people with turbans and all these exotic things, we see the Father setting aside the priest. We see the priest preparing to come before the Father. And we see the Spirit being applied liberally throughout this glorious and beautiful picture. Is that your reality? Is that your reality? picture? Do you see it? Do you see it? And do you own it? Because the alternative, brothers and sisters, is really sad. It's not even a hopelessness. It's just an apathy. Again, one of the commentators or one of the social commentators of today said it's hard to get really excited about life after death when you no longer believe in life before it. Is that not depressing? Is that not sad? And yet, is that not true? Is that not the heartache and the brokenness that we see around us? The death cult that so many are swallowed up in? It's hard to get excited about life after death if you don't believe there's any life before it. But, oh, beloved, here's a different story. 
Here is a different picture. Here is a picture of God Himself calling you and me into this union. You and I are not only called, but we're drawn in to this story. But secondly, we see here, even in this old text of livers and lobes of fat and kidneys and burning and all of that, we see a sign that points us to Christ. Because what did you see in the sacrifices here? What did you see both in the bull and in the ram? You saw with your eyes, as you were one of the children, verse 3, Moses, God said, assemble all the congregation to witness this with their own eyes. And you standing there, you saw that great high priest, the one who was going to come and make it right. You saw him place his hand on the head of a bull and say, I should die. And you saw that great high priest and you saw his sons place their hands together on the head of a ram. And you saw them say, I should be dead. This ram covers my sin before he's ever ready to do anything else. But I want to draw your attention back. You know I love pictures. You know I love portraits. I, I yammer about some of the pictures that hang up, uh, that, that hang on my walls. One of the things I love about pictures is they never, they, you're never done studying them. Uh, a picture truly is worth a thousand words. And there are so many things that can come out of this picture that we have before us. This scene, this very visual scene. I just want to draw your attention to one thing that you may have passed over, not noticed in the reading, but I guarantee stood out in the watching. And this is why I make the point that Leviticus has to be understood visually. Because as I read through that whole thing, what stood out to you as the most noticeable part of it? Probably the sacrifice, right? Probably the bull and the liver and the fat and the kidneys and the burning and all that. There's one little scene that we might pass over. And that is found in verse 5. Make sure. Verse 6, I'm sorry. That is found in verse 6. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Do you think that stood out? Do you think that maybe as you and I were standing around in the hot desert sun and we were looking at this grand scene that seeing Moses bring Aaron and his sons in front of this giant basin that is filled with water, and seeing Moses wash them with water, do you think that stood out in their memories? Even more when you consider that basin, because we've already encountered that basin. We encountered it back in Exodus
in Exodus chapter 38 and verse 8, he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. These women donated their mirrors. This thing that is is very important. I'm not going to make any gender-specific comments. <laughs> but I do know that mirrors are an important element in one's house. And that there are some who could not possibly care what they look like in the morning and specifically cut their hair that way <laughs> so that they don't ever have to bother with it. And there are others, not gender-specific, but who tend to take up much more space as well as much more time in things involving a mirror. These are what the women donated. These things that were important to them. They were important to them and they said, we're going to give it to Jesus. We're going to give it to God. And God turned these mirrors into this basin to hold purifying water. Cleansing water. And for all time up until the story that we read in John's Gospel, these stone jars were for the waters of purification. That's what was going on. It's the purification that is there in verse 6 that then Jesus Christ takes up in John's Gospel in His very first miracle and says, these waters, these waters that you can't even go and enjoy a wedding without openly acknowledging, I'm dirty. I need cleansing. 120 gallons of cleansing water changed into 120 gallons of wine. The best. The best wine. You see, beloved, Jesus begins here in this glorious story of the offering of the women becoming what holds this water of ceremonial cleansing. And He carries this all the way through to that first wedding in Cana of Galilee where He says, Now, now, that water of cleansing gets turned into the wine of joy. The wine of celebration. Why did Jesus choose that place to do His first miracle? Why did He enter into His ministry there? Why did He turn the water into wine? As He steps into that arena of His ministry, an open and public ministry that is going to lead to the cross, an open and public ministry that is going to be publicly declared to be right by His resurrection from the dead, His witness, as He is ascended into heaven and is seated at God's right hand, as He is reigning 
and destroying all his and our enemies, as he is subduing every power unto himself, as he is subduing you and me and breaking down every barrier against anyone who would stand against the Lord and his anointed, as he enters into that ministry, he takes that water. And he says, it's wine. You and I don't need cleansing anymore. You and I are cleansed. We are cleansed in him. We are clean. And he gives to us wine. Leviticus chapter 8 is an important day. The day has come. But beloved, is that not the message of the New Testament? We who live in these last days, is that not the message of the gospel? You upon whom the light has shone, the light went forth into darkness. The darkness did not behold it. But we who are drawn to him by his grace, we come and we see in these ancient forms our Savior, His work, and our peace, our redemption and healing. Beloved, do you know, do you know that Jesus Christ? Do you know that reality? One of the other things I mentioned, the sociologist that I'm reading right now, he says, With relative morality, when something is evil in 1990, righteous in 2000, evil again in 2010, and righteous in 2020. (laughs) When, When we have this just nonsense as to whatever morality is. The claims of Christianity, this guy said, can sound like a lecture on the founding fathers to a person on an acid trip. (laughs) It's a visual image. (laughs) Utterly irrelevant. My mind is utterly scrambled. I'm off here and you're talking about... I, I have no idea. And yet... We all can resonate with this image. We all can know. We can see this sight. We can behold this healing. And beloved, for you and I, the day is now. If you know this Christ, then you're united to him. You're kept by him. This grand drama is the story that you are already a part of. And God will keep you in it. If you don't know this Christ, then I invite you to check in. To step into a story that is way older than me, way older than you, way older than any nation state. It's as old as time itself. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes should not perish, 
but have eternal life. He gave His Son to us in that Son's incarnation. That Son took on flesh and dwelt among us so that that flesh could be destroyed. The purpose of Jesus Christ taking on human form was so that it would be destroyed. That He would be broken for you and me. Father, Your Gospel is sweet upon the ear and sweet upon the tongue. May our lives this week be sweet. A reflection of that glorious news. In Christ's name, amen.